At the Cryptid Keeper podcast, we love to laugh at the darkness, but we would never laugh at the rich cultures that explore it, or the unique cultural significance of the creatures explored. The jokes within are on no one but us. We encourage additional research on the subjects covered here, and hope that a comedy podcast is not your primary source of information. Keeper Podcast, the podcast for cryptids and their keepers. That's us. And if you are listening, it's you too. I'm Alex Flanagan. And I'm Addison Peacock. And with us this evening, we have a return guest, fan favorite, a star of award-winning podcast, Horror Borealis, and composer extraordinaire, Andrew Giada. Andrew, say hi to the nice people. Hi to the nice people. <laughs> should have seen that coming. You really should have. I really really should have really really should (laughs) uh thank you for for joining us on this fine evening i'm so glad you could clear your busy schedule (laughs) uh thank you so much for having me on i'm always happy to make time (laughs) earlier today i asked andrew if he would uh be interested in guesting with us and he looked at his phone and asked me what time as if that impacted at all anything that was going on right now. you don't know my life (laughs) i literally do (laughs) Look at this clown asking about time, as if time has any meaning in it this world. It was just world. one of those like funny, surreal things that makes you realize just how funny and surreal everything is at the moment. Because like, it's a perfectly innocuous question to ask, but in the moment it was just like, does that matter literally at all? Nothing matters anymore. Yeah. Is there such a thing as time? If there is, I have yet to see it. There never has been. That's what I thought. Thank you, friends and listeners, for um, exercising some patience with us as we got off on a bit of an irregular schedule last week. We're getting back into the swing of things this weekend. Um, We will just say that this most recent would-have-been episode was a, a, a swing and a miss because of the holiday, which, again, is not really real. But this is a holiday-themed episode, albeit maybe one a little bit different than what you might be expecting. So um, I am really excited, Addison, to talk to you today about golems. About what? About golems. Oh! Mm-hmm. Oh, 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 oh! Ooh, ooh, ooh! Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. You doing all right? Yeah, when I was a kid, I read a... Uh... I think it was a short story, or perhaps it was a full-length book. It's been a very long time. I read a piece of fiction mm-hmm. about a golem, and uh, and that's my only frame of reference, but I got very excited Addison, just now. I'm going to take a wild guess that you've read many pieces of literature about golems, because whether they know it or not, a lot of media is actually about golems or golem lore. Frankenstein comes to mind. Ooh. Now, again, there, we're going to get into this a little bit about, you know, the phrase golem and the terminology and the lore of golems does come from a very specific place and resides in a very specific place and belongs there. And to a certain extent, elements of it have been appropriated and the name has been appropriated in a lot of different places. And that has been diluted to a certain extent. Whether that's up to people to take is debatable, but a lot of the stories that have arisen from it do draw very heavily from those origins. And it's kind of interesting to have that context for them and to sort of know where that's come from. So before we get started, I do just want to go ahead and get this out of the way by saying that like golems do occupy a very specific place in Jewish folklore mm-hmm. and come from a very specific background. So I'm not calling them a cryptid from the standpoint of saying like, these things are to be written off as, you know, pieces of spooky myth and like invented reality. Like that's not what I'm saying. As you all know, we play it pretty fast and loose here with the definition. And as time goes on, and we've had to sort of expand our range and our radius a little bit, the term cryptid becomes maybe less and less applicable. We ostensibly sort of venture into folklore and mythology and um, mm-hmm. like cultural texts at a certain point. And this is definitely an episode that leans more in that direction. I'm not saying golems are like, ooh, oogie boogie, spooky monsters that we're just going to talk about that somebody made up. I'm saying like, these occupy a place in a specific cultural tradition. And we're going to examine that a little bit, but also talk about the way that it has influenced monster media since. Because there is a lot of sort of spinoff there. And it's very fascinating. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, So 
Addison, what do you know about golems before we get started? Figure in Jewish folklore. Mm-hmm. Made of clay. Mm-hmm. You carve some symbols on them and it makes them come to life. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm not mistaken from the version that I like, was exposed to, and I, again, I have literally no yeah, memory totally. of the specifics, um, they like pr- protect your family. Cool. Or something. <laughs> Andrew, what do you know about golems before we get started? Sure. So all of the things that Addison said, um, plus uh, it's not always uh, text carved in the body, but um, scrolls also either placed in the mouth or like on the forehead. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't always protect. Sometimes they attack. <laughs> but most importantly, they are they eat snack. <laughs> Do they? No. <laughs> it's an it's an interpretation. <laughs> I don't know. You can lie to me. Yeah, I'll believe you. Yeah. That's cool. kind of it. Andrew, were you raised with like golem stories or was that at all anything that figured into like <laughs> Not your really. childhood or it, No, they really didn't play a big part in um growing up. We didn't get much into like golem stories. I knew mm-hmm. like they existed and that they were like these clay creatures that like rabbis and others would like bring to life for protection. Sure. But I didn't really hear any specific stories and they didn't really have any big significant role in any of the um, Jewish holidays or anything mm-hmm. that we did. Cool. So a uh, golem, it, it's most basic sort Ooh. of definition. And we'll start with Wikipedia as we are prone to do. Uh, In Jewish folklore, a golem is an animated anthropomorphic being that is created entirely from inanimate matter. Usually that is clay or mud, but not exclusively. The word was used to mean an amorphous, unformed material in both psalms and medieval writing. So it's one of those things where pretty much any time you get into, like, quote-unquote ancient texts or particularly in languages that rely a lot more heavily on like contextual interpretation than literal word for word translations, it shows up sort of before the lore itself originates. So there are references to it in different places and that means that it's been interpreted differently as history goes on. The most famous golem narrative involves uh, the golem of Prague and that's sort of a central story that shows up anytime that you go researching golems or looking any further into them. The basic run of that is that Judah Loeb and Bezel, the late 16th century rabbi of Prague, created a golem, supposedly, or mastered a golem, or invoked a golem, however you want to go about thinking about it, to protect his specific community. Uh, and it was around, like, the Passover season. So it's sort of chronologically uh, topical at the moment. And we'll get into that story a little bit more in a few different ways that it's sort of been passed down. Mm -hmm. But according to Moment Magazine, and I really don't know that much about Moment Magazine, so I apologize if they're not a reliable source, the golem is a highly mutable metaphor with seemingly limitless symbolism. It can be a victim or villain, Jew or non-Jew, man or woman, or sometimes both. Over the centuries, it has been used to connote war, community, isolation, hope, and despair. I think something that is, like, super fascinating about the golem is that it is sort of infinitely open to interpretation. You know, it's, like, infinitely moldable. And I think that, you know, that is obviously a bit of a metaphorical reach there when you're talking about a creature that's literally made of clay. But I think people like that aspect of it. The fact that it's something that so directly represents the relationship between creator and created and this idea of like, invoking life and the ability or inability to fully master or control it. Like, that's something that writers really, really love. And it's a fascinating thing because it sort of directly parallels you know, the, like, God-man relationship that writers are always trying to sort of explore in their works anyway, Mm -hmm. but on a much more literalistic level. So a lot of things that people think are sort of referring to that, like, God-Adam dichotomy are really more realistically sort of a a man-golem dichotomy. And it's a really interesting way to sort of refocus your examination of those pieces of literature, because there is a much more literalistic viewpoint to view it from, you know? On that note, though, the... The two are not really that dissimilar. And in fact, um, let me find the correct source here because I don't want to misquote anything. I like your little song. Thank you. I wrote it just for this episode. It was a real good song. (laughs) 
Andrew would know he's a composer. Okay, yeah, so from <laughs> so I know all good songs. <laughs> you know every good song ever written. Uh-huh. Um, exactly. Do you know Mozart? Maybe you could introduce me. Uh, not personally, no. <laughs> so this comes to us from ancient-origins.net, which I think sounds trustworthy. If you can't trust a website with a hyphen in it, what can you trust? <laughs> but in their explanation and sort of investigation of golems, and again, I am not a Hebrew scholar. If this is incorrect, please let me know. But apparently, according to a Talmudic legend, Adam himself, like the first man, quote unquote, was a golem for the first 12 hours of his existence. Whoa. Yeah, so apparently there is some version or interpretation of those original ancient texts, which state that basically Adam was created as a golem and then imbued with like permanent life. Um, A golem can in many instances sort of just refer to a body without a soul, In the same way that some scholars say that a ghost represents a soul without a body, the golem is sort of the inverse of that. And so I I don't know. I mean, I guess if you're looking at it from a literalistic standpoint, just based on words meaning things and not on the cultural context that surrounds them, you know, like Adam was created out of the earth and the natural ether and then imbued with a spirit. So I guess if that's like what a golem is then logistically yes that makes sense to me i don't know like what the context is surrounding it um you know specifically from a hebrew standpoint but i think that tracks so before adam were there just ghosts floating around oh yeah there were so many ghosts okay (laughs) just the earth was loaded with ghosts um no couldn't move for ghosts that's not actually true that i know of i don't know maybe it is i wasn't around i don't know i wasn't there (laughs) i can't speak to it Friend of a friend says no. But yeah, there are many stories of folks throughout history having created or um, invoking golems. And in fact, and I cannot find like more detail or source on this story, apparently there is uh, sort of an urban legend or like oral history of a Nazi in World War II encountering a golem like in an attic that they were searching or invading. Um, and an encounter that was had there. I couldn't find any more details on that, but it was referenced in like two or three different places. So I'm really curious if that story has made it to anyone out there who maybe can shed some more light on it, because that's really fascinating to me. But that indicates to me that, you know, I don't know, maybe they're still, maybe they're still finding new life out there. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would believe it, right? Like if the point of golems is to protect the Jewish people, then like, Mm -hmm. yeah, that seems like a good time to use one. (laughs) It seems like a good time to break out the family golem. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The word golem occurs exactly once in the Bible. It is in Psalm 139.16, which uses the word golmi, meaning my golem. That means my light form or raw material connoting the unfinished human being before God's eyes, which probably is another reference back to that sort of like Adam connection there. Hmm. I don't know. The Mishnah uses the term for an uncultivated person. So the word, I guess, can also be used to reference like a person who is not a complete person in the sense of not being like a body made from clay without a soul in it, but being a person who is not yet realize their full potential or or come about to like the full extent of the expression of humanity. That's super mm-hmm. interesting. Mhm. Apparently in modern Hebrew, the word golem is used to mean like helpless or dumb, and similarly it is often used today as a metaphor for a and I quote from Wikipedia, mindless lunk or entity who serves a man under controlled conditions but is hostile to him under others. Huh. Yeah. Huh. I mean all of these things kind of track with what we've talked about golems doing so far. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, interesting stuff. It's one of those things where anytime something occupies such a sort of notable position in a cultural folklore, then references to it become kind of inevitable. And that means the word can take on a more generic meaning over time. And whether fortunately or unfortunately, that sort of opens it up to being, I think, like transmuted across cultural borders. So I think anytime, you know, the word golem has for a lot of people probably unknowingly become so divested from that origin that it seems like it's just a fantasy trope they can pick up and take somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I know for a fact that golems show up in like D and D and like other 
sort I mean, of uh, like sci-fi fantasy games where people are like, ah, oh, we want to fight a big baddie who's just like a made of dirt and listens to one specific person. And it's like, cool. Right. At that point, is that really the same thing? Like, can we find a different word for that? But at that point, that starts to sound to me like, um, like a dirt homunculus. What you have is a Gundam. You have a Gundam. You have a dirt Gundam. Although, <laughs> apparently, according to the last person I asked about Gundams, Gundams are only made from the metal Gundanium. <laughs> Were you talking to Jay? No, I was talking to James D'Amato. <laughs> well, he would also know. Brag. <laughs> I was talking to TV's James D'Amato about Gundam. Uh, I literally, truly could not have. <laughs> yeah, you really couldn't. I'm sorry. I don't mean to deviate too too much. Is there a fictional metal in in Gundam? Yes, gun, Gundanium alloy is. I'm sorry. Did you say fictional? <laughs> yeah, Gundam is a Gundam is a documentary. <laughs> Oh, I'm so sorry. I am not as familiar with your big metal, big metal suit. No, no, no. That's Full Metal Alchemist is what you're thinking of. That's a different one. I have not watched Gundam in years. I do remember it being on Toonami when I would get home from like middle school. I've never seen Gundam. I've never watched it. I think it was Gundam Wing that was on at that point in time. I don't uh-huh. know if that means anything to anyone who watches Gundam more than me. James, please explain. I've never seen not even a single episode, and I don't know. Yeah, so you're thinking of uh, Mobile Suit Gundam, apparently, oh, which okay. is the one the one that was on when we were kids and got home from middle school. Gotcha. But there are like a billion different series, apparently. Yeah, that's not shocking. Oh, good. Anyway, petition to change all instances of golems in fantasy games to Gundams. Dirt yes. Gundams. Yeah, just change the idea of change every single <laughs> of- golem to Gundam. <laughs> The idea of battling a Gundam in a D&D game is very funny to me. I really like going into Pokemon where you have Geodude, Graveler, and then Gundam. Dirt Gundam. Go, Dirt Gundam. I love that, honestly. Gundam. Gundam, gone. Gundam, gone. I just mega-evolved my Dirt Gundam. I'm afraid. Wow, you have an Alolan Gundam. What's it look like? Um, it looks exactly like the Pokemon Golem that we currently know to exist does, except that it's also wearing like a Power Ranger suit. Pretty good. Yeah. Anyway, where where were we? What were we talking about? We were talking about I have golems. Absolutely no idea. Um, okay. And yes. golems in pop culture, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. We were somewhere around there. I don't even know anymore. Okay, perfect. Love that for us. Um, anyway, during the Middle Ages. <laughs> Passages from the Sefer Yetzira, or Book of Creation, were studied as a means to create and animate a golem. Apparently, there are, like, instructions on how to make your own golem if you can't find one at the store. Um, you know? The whole if you can't fine. make your own Gundams... Uh, oh. <laughs> Gundams. <laughs> I just said Gundams. I messed it up. Do you want to try that joke again? <laughs> no, continue. It's fine. <laughs> So during the Middle Ages, passages were studied as a means to create and animate a golem, although there is little in the writings of Jewish mysticism that supports this belief. I, again, I cannot speak to that. I am not a scholar of Hebrew mysticism. Uh, It was believed that golems could be activated by an ecstatic experience induced by the ritualistic use of various letters of the Hebrew alphabet, which formed a Shem or any one of the names of God or secret names of God where you would basically write the Shem that you had chosen on a piece of paper and insert it into the mouth or on the forehead of the golem, which is what you had referenced earlier, Andrew. In some tales, a golem is inscribed with Hebrew words, um, such as the word, and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing this, it is E-M-E-T. I don't know if that's Emmet or Emet. What is it? E-M-E-P? E-M-E-T. T. E-T? Mm-hmm. I would say Emmet. Okay, so emet oh, apparently oh, oh, uh, stands for sorry. truth in Hebrew. Alex, I just had the most vivid memory of the short story that I or book that I read. Yes, in the book. Okay, she so wiped yeah, off. so the word emet means truth in Hebrew, and that is what you would sort of write on your dirt gun to turn it on. <laughs> and when uh, the golem could then be deactivated by removing the first letter, which changed the word mm-hmm. to the Hebrew word for death. Yes, in the in the thing I read, she wiped. There was a woman. I don't mm-hmm. remember anything about the context. I don't remember anything about the story. But she used her thumb and she wiped the e mm-hmm. off. Yep. And it and it, and then it died. I I don't remember anything about this sh- 
this story. I just remember that. Well, luckily for you, that's the most important part, is this really interesting sort of transformation from truth, which is what, you know, activates a golem to death, which is, you know, obviously what ends mm-hmm. it. Truth to that's death. That's really cool. It's really, really fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting sort of component of it. And it points to and like something... the power of words. Exactly. It points to this really fascinating relationship between the concept of language and the act of creation. And I'm probably going to end up like waxing metaphorical on this and like waxing poetic about it and divesting it a bit from its original context. And I apologize for that in advance, but it is fascinating and it is worth examining the fact that like those two things are kind of inherently interrelated. And, you know, even in other major theologies, the idea of the power of the spoken or written word as being like so integral to the act of creation or creationism Um, is like really, really prevalent. It shows up again and again and again and again and again, even in invented mythologies too, actually. And this is where I'm going to nerd out a little bit. Like, for example, in the creation myths of Lord of the Rings and Middle Earth, like the whole creation of the universe is like significantly and inherently tied to the act of speaking it into existence, which is kind of a really fascinating meta on like Tolkien himself, who was a linguist and who like created this entire written world by essentially, you know, writing and speaking it into existence. It's really fascinating. But all of that just to say that, like, this is a theme that is so interesting to me because this idea of, like, the power of words and, like, how specificity in language and the changing of even a single letter can, like, imbue such power into a thing, you know? I think it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. No, it is. And it's, and it's, very, it's a very powerful uh, image as mm-hmm. well. Just, I, I remember, clearly I remember it enough that it stuck with me when no other aspect of the thing that I read, whatever it was, did. And there's something to be said for that. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Apparently, uh, Rabbi Jacob Ben Shalom arrived at Barcelona from Germany in 1325 and remarked that the law of destruction is the reversal of the law of creation, which is a commentary on that, you know, truth v. death thing, which is fascinating. So I think that's an interesting student. Isn't there a line in, in Rent about that? The opposite of... Um, the opposite war of peace, it's war creation. isn't peace, it's creation. Yeah. I think it's an interesting thing. Um, I'm the right person to ask about lyrics to the Broadway musical Rent. I genuinely, that was sounded like sarcasm in my cadence. I regret to inform most people that I really don't care all that much about Rent, but I do love that lyric. It's a great line. Here's the thing about Rent is that <laughs> it's a deeply flawed musical and I don't begrudge anyone who doesn't like it. I I do very, very much. And I think that liking Rent depends entirely on, like, where you are in your life when you first are exposed to That's it. That's totally fair. I also... And then once you like it, you like it forever, even when you know it's not that great. <laughs> I also uh, tend to think, and I don't mean anything mean by this, and so I hope it is not taken the wrong way, just from my standpoint as sort of an amateur theater historian, I think that it would not have had nearly the cultural impact it did if it had not aligned with the untimely death of its creator in such a poignant way. I think that's fair. Um, it was already beginning to do well when he passed, but... It- and I believe it would have done well. I just don't believe it would have been like instantly canonized as a classic if it didn't end up proving itself timely in that specific way. For sure. Um, I think it also just happened to hit at just the right cultural moment. There's also like a, not enough... Yeah, totally. Not enough is said for the fact that a lot of works that become canonized become that way, not necessarily because of any inherent, like, objective quality, although, like, again, I love Rent a lot. I'll go to bat for various aspects of it time and time again. It's fine. Um, uh, things, if they hit at just the right time, that, like, that's such an important part of what makes a work stick around. Oh, definitely. Like, um, I say this a lot, people are going to get mad at me, but if the first Star Wars movie came out right now, people would not really be that into it well that's definitely true and i think we talked about this on our netflix and kill episode actually (laughs) which is uh maybe we're just really ready to have this conversation at all moments i'm honestly at any given time geared up to talk about it i'm so sorry anyway look i'm sorry but (laughs) no people don't even like the star wars movies that did come out today so yeah they definitely (laughs) like like the ones especially Especially, not star Star wars Wars fans fans hate star Wars. i like one of the star wars movies that came out today I won't say which one, 
There was a new Star Wars movie out today? <laughs> these days and these modern times. Just pictures from Dune, Addison. <laughs> I love how they put oh Timothy God. Chalamet in Star Wars. <laughs> oh my God. I love Kylo Ren's little brother. God, you're not wrong. <laughs> I would love to watch a sci-fi movie that was not just sand and black clothing. Please, can we have that? Where are they? Where are they? No disrespect to Dune, which is heavily influenced by a lot of Middle Eastern and North African cultures, but weirdly enough, didn't cast any people from those respective areas. Interesting. No, sorry, I'm just imagining that, that ridiculous meme, and it's starring Alex, and it's like, Alex, can I have new sci-fi? Hollywood, we have new sci-fi at home. New sci-fi <laughs> at home, the Dune trailer. Or the Dune trailer. <laughs> we have new sci-fi at home. It's just Dune. It's just the screen caps from Dune. Oh, God. That's fine. All you get is black clothing and <laughs> I'm, like, biologically pre-programmed to love it, but I just can't. And I'm sorry for that. And the original even had Kyle MacLachlan in it. It's, like, a tr- it's like a series made for me, specifically in a test tube. But I don't know. They're just not managing to make it interesting to me. It didn't quite... The stars didn't quite align. Anyway, this is, this is not our Dune cast. This is and not it our never Dune will cast, be. So we'll get away from that. <laughs> it literally never will. Sorry, Dune fans. I don't know anything about Dune. Anyway. Which means I can say whatever I want about it. That's not, that's not what that means. <laughs> I think that's what it means. I choose to believe that's what that means. Let's talk a little bit about the most famous golem. Or rather, the most famous golem story. I guess it's unfair to compare golem to golem. And I'm not trying to pit them against each other in that way. But... Probably the most well-known golem narrative. Wait, 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 wait. Uh-huh. The most famous golem is Dwayne The Rock Johnson. <laughs> oh my god, can you imagine? <laughs> anyway, was, that's just a little He was just joke. formed from clay to become the perfect wrestler. What just boy. happened? I just made a little joke. That's it. It was a fun little joke. I enjoyed it. I liked it. just a small joke about how his nickname is The Rock and they're made of clay. No, Dwayne I The Rock it. Johnson is a dirt Gundam confirmed. Also, as someone who is like, as someone, I say it's like the whole world hasn't, who has seen Dwayne the Rock Johnson's physique, it does appear as if that man was perhaps carved from some sort of stone. I really like the implication of this weird deep lore where so few of us have seen Dwayne the Rock Johnson's true body. <laughs> as one of the privileged few <laughs> who has have seen. been gifted with this. I don't want to say it like that. That makes it sound like I've known Dwayne The Rock Johnson in a way that I'd have not. His body is carved from 100% USDA grade A beef, honey. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, you ready to talk about golems? I have to leave. Hey, if Dwayne The Rock Johnson has a dirt Gundam, stop. Who's piloting him? No. Who's piloting him? Who is driving Dwayne the Rock Johnson? That's not a question you're ready to have answered. Who is driving Dwayne the Rock Vin Diesel. Johnson? <laughs> <laughs> Vin Diesel's like, darn it, I need to make myself a slightly more muscular man. Actually, I'm pretty sure I might have made this up. I hope I'm not actually spreading rumors. I feel like they don't like each other. I feel like I've heard that they don't like each other. I think it had something to do with the Fast and Furious movies. Yeah. I know that he and, um, oh, what's his name? I don't know. What is his name? Another bald, muscular man? <laughs> yeah. Who? There's yes. only two. There are only two. Who's the other furious man? Jason Statham? No, no, no. He's not a serious man. I said furious man, but that's fair. Uh, Tyrese Mr. Gibson. Mr. Clean. I don't know oh, who that okay. is. Tyrese Gibson. Yeah, he he's another one in the Fast and Furious franchise. Mm. Um, he doesn't like Dwayne The Rock Johnson because he didn't agree with the direction that he wanted to take it. Um, okay. There are artistic visions for the <laughs> Fast and Furious say. franchise differed. <laughs> I know so little hey. about... I just, they I had need, different I just artistic to, like, visions for those movies. <laughs> I just need to take a second because I love knowing that there is a level of privilege it is possible to achieve where your greatest concern is that somebody is going to artistically misinterpret the vision that you have for your Fast and Furious movies. Uh-huh. <laughs> Like, it's 
possible to have so few concerns in the world that your biggest one is that people aren't gonna know that your race car movie <laughs> has the meaning you were hoping to I, reflect. Look, are they race cars? Race cars are the metaphor. The movie is about family. Are they race cars or do they just take regular cars and drive them really fast? I don't know. I I've mean, never any seen any car a movie. is a race car if you race it. I just said I've never seen a movie. I. You've never seen a movie? You're in <laughs> film school. What do you do? Listen, if you've never seen a Fast and Furious movie, then you've nev- you might as well have never seen a movie. Damn. I also have never seen a Fast and Furious movie. <laughs> hey, I know what we're doing tonight, Alex. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, Andrew, apparently what I do in film school is fall asleep on Zoom calls with my microphone still on and snore so loud that the rest of my classmates have to end the call and start a new Zoom call without me snoring in it. Well, you know what, Addison? What? If they'd been talking about the Fast and Furious franchise, I bet you wouldn't have fallen asleep. It wasn't anyone's fault. My own. (laughs) But also, you're right. Probably discussing the antics of Vin Diesel and crew would have been enough to keep me awake and engaged. (laughs) Of one one Mr. Diesel. (laughs) One Mr. Vincent Diesel. Is it Vincent? Is I just is it is 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 Vince short for anything? His his birth name is Mark Sinclair. Which, like, what? also is a great actor name. <laughs> wait, it is wait, a really good actor name. wait, Andrew. <laughs> his birth name is Mark Sinclair. He, his actor name is Vin Diesel. I was so ready to believe this man's birth name was Vin Diesel. <laughs> Vincent Diesel. Vincent Diesel. That's his name. Hey, did you know, I'm sorry, this is super off topic, but Vin Diesel is cast in the upcoming hit film Avatar 2. What? That Vin Diesel's going to be in Avatar 2. You know what I hope? I hope he's Sigourney Weaver's man candy. I hope he's playing um, a Navi and he's just in a blue CGI casing the entire time. I hope he's just a really hot Navi alien that Dr. Sigourney Weaver gets to kiss a lot. Alex, what is this? <laughs> I want that for her. She deserves the world. Hey, I don't. I I don't. I I seriously don't know what we're talking. about. Hey, what's this podcast? Did she die in the first one? Because I is the podcast over? Yes, she did. Is the podcast over? No. You (laughs) no. Sorry, Andrew. You go home when I say you can go home. (laughs) Oh no! Unfortunately, no. We have to give Val at least twenty more minutes of this. Oh boy. Good thing we haven't. Let's do it for Val. Good thing we haven't talked about anything yet, really. I was trying to tell you all about the most famous golem narrative of all time. Do it. <laughs> and then we went somewhere totally different. Anyway, the most famous golem narrative, and now this is going to feel like a major letdown from the incredible artistic vision that is the Fast and Furious franchise, but it's the uh, the golem of Prague, who was brought into existence by Rabbi Judah Loben Bezalel, the late 16th century rabbi of Prague, also known as the Maharal, who reportedly created a golem out of clay from the banks of the Vltava River and brought it to life through rituals and Hebrew incantations to defend the Prague ghetto from uh, blood libel, basically, and to assist with like construction and development inside the community. And depending on the version of legend, the Jews in Prague were either to be expelled or killed under the roof of Rudolf II, the Holy Roman Emperor. The golem was called Yosef, and it was known as Yosele, It was said that he could make himself invisible and summon spirits from the dead, which is a power I've not seen golems to have in any other story, but apparently in this one it did. Um, Rabbi Lowe deactivated the golem on Friday evenings by removing the Shem before the Sabbath began so as to let it rest on the Sabbath. One Friday evening, he forgot to remove the Shem and feared that the golem would desecrate the Sabbath. So that's an interesting thing. I guess the golem got weekends off. This is also the only story I've seen of, like, having a golem where you, like, turned it basically off and on at certain intervals. Um, I don't know why, but I guess I was just under the impression before reading this that it was kind of like you brought it to life and then it did whatever it did and you kind of, like, deactivated it as, like, a last-ditch effort if you had to take it down, like, if it got out of control. Yeah, I've definitely heard of them being, like, activated and deactivated before. That's really fascinating to me. Yeah, I like I I don't know why I didn't think that happened. And it's probably because I had only really been consuming them through the lens of where everybody else sort of took them and decided they were crazy monsters. 
And Mm -hmm. yeah, so naturally, like it becomes a much different kind of thing. But um, I don't know why like that little detail of it is so interesting to me. I really like this idea of like, oh, you know, this is a tool that we have for our community. And like, we're going to use it when we need to. And when we don't need it, we're going to turn it off. Like, that's so sensible. (laughs) It is, isn't it? I think also that's the thing, the problem, uh, the, I had also had that sort of assumption. I think that's the problem when these very specific cultural figures get bastardized by people who don't know much about them mm-hmm. and sure. go and become these like kind of monster figures as opposed to what it seems like, for the most part, they golems are in, in stories, which is like good to neutral. Yeah, exactly. I think um, really, at least from what I have seen, and again, I I don't pretend to be the utmost authority on this, it seems to me like they are creatures of purpose. And I think Mm -hmm. that really the problems result when that purpose is misinterpreted or maybe not made clear enough, similar to a lot of like Jinn or Genie mythology, where it's like, be careful what you ask for kind of a deal. Um, Golems are known for being like... not ridiculously, but, like, intensely literal. Mm. And so a lot of problems that folks would have with golems would be that you would, for lack of a better word, like, create a golem for a specific purpose and not be clear enough about what it is that you wanted or needed it to do, and it would fulfill it to sort of the letter of the law as opposed to the spirit of the law kind of a thing. So they're like the Amelia Bedelia of (laughs) cryptids. Uh, Yes, if you have a dirt Gundam powered by Amelia Bedelia, that would be... (laughs) To uh, get Amelia Bedelia to stop messing up your house, you simply have to erase one of the letters on her forehead. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you have to remove have the to sacred kill scroll Amelia from her Bedelia. mouth. <laughs> it's the only way to stop her, Amelia Bedelia can only be defeated by removing the sacred letter from her forehead. Oh. <laughs> and, and allowing her to rest on the Sabbath day. You have to remember to remove the scroll from her mouth. <laughs> before you leave your very expensive home. I used to be very, a very, very big fan of Amelia Bedelia. Gosh, I loved Amelia Bedelia. As a child, I definitely didn't really get what the joke of Amelia Bedelia was. I didn't retain, like, any... I did not retain the bit. Mm. Ah. I just was like, she is a funny housekeeper, and I like her. (laughs) She sure is. And then I got older and heard multiple references to her being like super literal like that and then i kind of realized in retrospect that she had been but as a child i i the bit was completely lost on me i was just like love this fun housekeeper i like her she's fun <laughs> she's fun <laughs> oh very good <clears throat> and that's on reading comprehension <laughs> Anyway, I don't want to overlook this detail about um, the Sabbath day. Oh, yes. You know, I don't want to like just say like, I, I know I, I joke about, you know, turning your golem off for the weekend. Reality, again, there is a very specific purpose for that observation. And it's probably, again, small details like that that get omitted over time that lead to it being so easily reinterpreted in different contexts when maybe it shouldn't be. Um, in any case, there is also a, a different version of the story, which is fascinating to me solely for the Frankenstein connection that I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. which is a version of the story where the it tells of a golem that fell in love and when rejected became the violent monster seen in most accounts. Some versions have that golem eventually going on a murderous rampage. So this idea that's, of, yeah, like a, a body without wild. a soul that is created and then like seeks human connection and is rejected and turns to like violence and anger is like wow that's a really clear narrative right like that's very recognizable Mm -hmm. to us absolutely yeah for sure in either case uh the rabbi of prague then managed to pull the shem from his mouth and immobilize him in front of the synagogue whereupon the golem fell into pieces the golem's body was stored in the attic where it would be restored to life again if needed so they popped their golem into storage and figured if they needed it again they would just bring it back out Apparently, there are some connections between, like, that account and that later, like, Nazi attic golem encounter story. I think in some accounts, that is the golem that the attic Nazi found. You know, the golem of Prague has done a lot of work, and we should be very grateful. We stand the golem of Prague. (laughs) We stand the golem of Prague. We have no choice but to. Alrighty, so that is most of what I've got going for you vis-a-vis, like... The Golem of Prague and its initial story, there are a lot of other sources that sort of just like expand upon and and provide more context and more depth to like those things we've already talked about. We lost some time to the Fast and Furious franchise, but I do want to touch on another iteration of the Golem lore, uh, which is sort of in a bit more... 
uh, a bit more secular tradition, which is the clay boy variation. Sorry, the the what now? The clay boy. Oh, you said clay boy. Alex, I need you yes. to know. I need you and I need Andrew to know that clay boy sounds like a neurotic magazine where I guess the women modeling are covered in clay. Well, yeah, that's what I thought she said at first also. No, he's just a little boy made of clay. What? What is wrong with you people? This is a family-friendly <laughs> podcast. Listen, Alex. He's a little boy. He's a child. We are family-friendly people. He's a guy made <laughs> of dirt. He's a little boy, a tiny child, sculpted from the ground by a lonely couple. And then it's sort oh, of no. a gingerbread man situation. Oh, or um, like a Pinocchio. Like a Pinocchio. It's exactly like a Pinocchio, if the problem with Pinocchio is that Pinocchio kept growing larger and larger, consuming all of their livestock and eventually his oh, parents. No. Alex, no. <laughs> <laughs> and then the Clayboy rampages through the village until he is smashed by a goat. One more time. Can I get that one more time? <laughs> And then the clay boy <laughs> rampages through the village until he is smashed by a clever goat. A clever goat. All goats are clever. A clever goat. What makes a goat so much so much cleverer than the other goats? How it's not a matter of being cleverer than other goats. It's a matter of being cleverer than the clay boy. <laughs> Doesn't matter how smart the, the other goats boy. are. That's not who he's fighting. I... I... Yes. I questions. Have, I have many. I have several. <laughs> okay. Okay. Beautiful. So, like Pinocchio, but instead of his nose getting longer when he lies, he eats and eats and eats and eats and grows to an impossible size, all the while uh-huh. trying to Sounds fill like a me. hunger that can never be sated. <laughs> Please. <laughs> yeah, that's basically it. What did the goat? How does the goat defeat him? What did the goat do? Smashes him. <laughs> no, but, but no, but, he just smashes him. But he Ow. just smashes him with what? <laughs> I imagine it varies from version to version. It's uh, you know how goats just smash things sometimes. I yeah, do just smashy. <laughs> I did grow up on a very particular story from my dad <laughs> about when he was a child and a massive clay boy ate all. No, I'm kidding. But uh, when he was a child and. <laughs> He had relatives with a farm or like, and they had goats and there was a billy goat with like a little beard. Um, Uh And because my dad was a child and made irrational decisions as children often do, he thought I should pull on that little beard on that goat's face. I should give that little beard a tug. I should give that little beard a tug. So he did. And then the goat was obviously very upset and the goat chased him with its horns and he had to climb up a fence to get away from the goat. Rick, no. So now you know exactly how Clayboy could have been smashed by a goat. Probably it was like that, is what I'm saying. <laughs> Probably it was like that. Um, but yeah, the Clayboy tale is sort of, uh, it's a Yiddish and Slavic folk tale. So there are different versions of it, just like there are many different versions of the gingerbread man story. Like the core elements of it, I'm sure, are all the same, but it it, it varies depending on who's telling it to you. Mm-hmm. Those are my favorite kind of stories. They're really good, yeah. I love all the, the variants based on like where you are and when you heard it and all of that stuff and how things evolve over time. It's very good. Was it you, Andrew, who just like recently found out that in most versions of Little Red Riding Hood, like the wolf does eat Little Red Riding Hood? Yeah. Yeah. I I remember we were like... (laughs) I always thought that Little Red Riding Hood got away and somehow managed to defeat the wolf on her own. I didn't even know there was any kind of like big woodsman character. Oh yeah, Mm -hmm. the version version I was told was always that she got eaten and then the woodsman cut the wolf's stomach open and pulled her and her grandma out and they were somehow still alive. Yeah, I didn't know that. I always thought that she got away and saved her grandma from the wolf's stomach herself. I really appreciate the feminist retelling of Little Red Riding Hood that you were raised with. I like yeah, it too, same. but there's there's also a version where they like feed the wolf a bunch of stones and then throw him in a river or something. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah, there's a version where they feed the wolf a bunch of stones and then he's like too heavy to move and also dies. <laughs> it's a oh. lot. It's a oh. lot. So the clay There are also a shocking number of like original fairy tales that end with like the evil stepmother character having to like dance in red hot iron shoes until she dies. Yeah, that's in, I think it's in Snow White. That's in Snow White. Yeah, but it shows up in other places too, like in other lesser known Brothers Grimm folk tales. It's like a punishment that happens more than once. But yeah, it's it's the original ending of Snow White. 
a very popular ending. In Cinderella, yeah. the sister's eyes are pecked out by birds. Yeah. Fairy tales were, like, pretty gnarly. They were super gnarly. It's a really interesting thing, you know, the idea that, like, they were escape Like, the escapist factor of Brothers Grimm fairy tales and fairy tales in general was not that bad things never happened. It was that bad people faced justice for them. Mm-hmm. And, like that was enough of a departure from reality that people loved seeing it, which is depressing. Sounds familiar. I'm thinking now, yeah, as right. you said that, I, like, in my brain saw a montage of all the horror movies I've watched in the last couple days. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. And I think that, like, honestly, there's something to How that. many was that? <laughs> Literally, I've been watching so much. I've only been watching comedy and horror comedy because escapism and horror since all this began and horror because I'm like, bad stuff's going to happen, but I'm safe. And then the bad person will get get got. Well, right. Yeah. And there's something to that, mm. you know, like it's not always helpful to watch something that doesn't come close to reflecting your reality. It's actually much more cathartic, I think, to watch something that hits close to the truth of the things that you're dealing with without Mm. directly reflecting them happening to you, but that also provides you like a more satisfying ending to it. Yeah. So like for a lot of people who were consuming, you know, like Brothers Grimm folktales, like they were poor and they were living in horrible situations and they like were oppressed by, you know, the laws of the land. But it was nice to think that the people who did those things and wielded and abused that authority might have something really horrible happen to them. Isn't that a nice fantasy? That's fair. Yeah, that's the same like that. reason I watch Law and Order SVU. I'm not lying. I'm not joking. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. well, there you go. Um, anyway, I'm so that sorry. bad things happen to bad people. Mm-hmm. It's a nice little fantasy. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry. Uh, the Clay Boy. The Clay Boy. Yep. I interrupted you, and you were telling us all about him and all of his all of his un- unholy hungers. And that's basically all there is. I don't know what more you want to know about the Clay Boy. That's basically the Clay Boy. I'm changing my I'm changing my Twitter bio to unholy hungers. <laughs> Okay. Um, Alex, does he eat his parrots? Yes. I'm sorry. Was that not clear? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry okay. if you wanted a more indirect answer to that, but yes. He oh, does. no, he totally just eats his parents. No, he super does. He does eat them. He does eat the lovely elderly couple, the lonely elderly couple that sculpted him from clay and dried him by their hearth and raised him as their own son. He does eat them. <laughs> He does. No, he just eats them. Oh, eats them right up. That's brutal. I don't have a response to that. I just wanted to <laughs> confirm. <laughs> no, I'm happy to help clarify there. No, just, yeah, mm-hmm. that's it. It's just, brutal. It's just, it's just painful. It's just hard to mm-hmm. look at. Hard to see. That's all it is. Terrible to know. You hate to see it. <laughs> but that does, the Clayboy story does confirm our thesis that uh, fairy tales are hardcore. Oh, super hardcore. Yeah, absolutely. Serious question, is there meant to be, like, a moral of the story to the Clayboy story? Like, is there a lesson? I don't think so. <laughs> um, if I were to guess at, like, sort of what the moral is, I think it gets at the moral, quote-unquote, as much as there can be one, of any, like, golem story, which is that the idea that creating and trying to wield and master the power of life-giving is, like, an inherently dangerous thing that is not within the human realm for a reason. Like, mm. that power is not supposed to be just tossed around idly which is to a really a pretty powerful uh, and pretty present theme i think yeah, in storytelling I mean, it's just kind of like prometheus and mm-hmm. all of that again yeah definitely um and again very very frankenstein you know the idea that like just because you can doesn't mean you should and uh in addition to that that there is like a, a level of responsibility that comes with nurturing life once you create it you know you can't just like make a thing and then decide you don't like it or that it's too big and eating all your livestock. <laughs> like you have an obligation to that clay boy. Also, I have to say, say it's not a one-to-one parallel, but there's something to be said for the lesson that that teaches us about literal parenthood. Mm-hmm, for sure. Because you are placing yourself in charge of a life that is reliant on you. And you're correct. You don't just get to make it and push it out into the world and then go, okay. Yeah, it's really, really fascinating. I'm, I'm, I am glad that we got back around at this point, actually. Thank you. Because it um, brings me over to one other source, which I did just want to reference, because um, I think it's contextually important, uh, which comes to us from the Encyclopedia Mythica on Pantheon.org. And this is an article on the Golem of Prague by Dr. Arbel, PhD. Do not know what their PhD is in. But um, this is a, a whole extensive and really fascinating article on the Golem of Prague from a more well-informed perspective than just like the quick overview that I gave. But it does 
uh, just give some more context and background on Rabbi Loeb and the circumstances that led to the creation of the golem. And here it says, even to a holy man or a great mystic, creating life is forbidden. It can only be justified if many lives would be saved by doing so, and not always even then. But Rabbi Loeb was instructed to try the horrifying task. He created his golem with divine help, using Kabbalistic formulas communicated to him in his dreams. Acquiring this God-given knowledge was neither simple nor easy. The formulas were given, but deciphering them had to be done by the person himself. Worse, he had to use the true name of God, which was known only to a few holy men in each generation and was very dangerous to pronounce. The power it unleashed could turn against the man who uttered it. Um, and I think that there is something interesting there. Like, obviously, there's something interesting there about the idea of this is an incredible power. And even if you have it doesn't mean that you are in a position where you even should use it or consider using it. Um, but then I'm, I'm really fascinated by the language here of like, worse he had to use the true name of God. I, I think that there would be in a lot of contexts, I can see there being like people who see that as an incredible power and a privilege to wield. And I am so fascinated by the framing of it as like a terrible task that had to be done. And that's like, obviously, a, a, a very culturally specific thing in this circumstance. Um, this idea of like, this is a thing that you're not supposed to do, but like it had to be done for the greater good in this case. Um, and I'm just very fascinated by the framing of that responsibility as juxtaposed to like, you know, fantasy stories or other cultural stories where it's like, there's a, a secret or like a, a thing that gives you ultimate power or like magic words that people spend their entire lifetime trying to decipher and unlock and learn. Whereas this was a power that was like given to you that you didn't want to ever have to use. I just think it's neat. No, it is. It's really powerful. <laughs> I just think it's neat. <laughs> I just think it's neat is all. I just think it's neat. I'm realizing that I know the dead air is not great for podcasting. I keep having moments where I'm just sort of sitting with the thing you've just told me and being like, I don't feel like I have anything thoughtful to offer to this. So I'm just going to sit and process the information I've just been given. And then I realize that that's not what, how podcasts <laughs> work. Because <laughs> people can't see that I'm just sitting here with a contemplative expression. They know. I like to believe that they know. I mean, that's fair. I should, I should give them a little more credit, I guess. But, <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting stuff. And I think it's an example of how powerful stories are uh, and how lasting these sort of... I, I, I'm not very articulate right now, but like... The stories we tell ourselves matter and this sort of thing as old as a lot of these, like these go back pretty far. Oh yeah. I just think there's something to be said for how much how much it lasts. Definitely. And I think there's so much to be taken from looking at stories like this in their initial context. You know, I mean like I think there is something that feels very universal about a story which represents like the struggle of like power and creation and the responsibility between like man and God and what have you like, but at the same time, just because that story feels very universal to us and feels like it's widely applicable, there's still a lot to be gained and a lot more depth and context and like nuance that you can get by looking at where it actually comes from and like what it looks mm -hmm. like in its original form. Well, yeah, definitely. I mean, looking at specifically the golem and the culture it comes from, if it, was without the culture you would just think oh it's it's some big guardian i don't know why like whatever powerful cultures like let's say you associated golems with the founding fathers of the united states you would think i don't know why they necessarily needed that i mean maybe then sure <laughs> but if you look at the i don't know what i'm saying if you look at the context for what the golem is it like it definitely makes sense mm -hmm. that it it came about uh staple i guess as yeah, a guardian definitely. of the of the jewish faith well and i think that's such an interesting point because i um and I'm, I'm really grateful for your perspective on this because i think even just here because of you know how many times i've seen this sort of trope played out in literature it's very hard for me not to think of it as like an individualistic story of like a person and their relationship to the golem that they created when everything that you're saying and like reminding me of is that this is a story about community responsibility and community protection. It's a story about like a culture and a neighborhood invoking something that is much more powerful than them and like which transcends them in order to like safeguard the things that they need to protect um, because of their cultural identity. And like, that's such a fundamentally different story. And you absolutely lose that context for it if you try to take it away from 
the fact that it is an inherently Jewish story. Absolutely. And even looking at like the cases of golems where they protect whoever they're supposed to protect or kind of like, I don't want to say turn on them, but do more harm toward the mm-hmm. community they're supposed to protect, like Clayboy. If you look back at, <laughs> yeah, if you look back at a lot of like the the Jewish stories involving directly God and the people of the Jewish faith, it very much represents that relationship as well, where Old Testament God is both like very protective, but also very like punishing and harsh mm-hmm. if you do anything wrong at all. So it does kind of reflect that relationship as well, especially since with the um, the information you gave from the rabbi uh, using the hidden name of, or the secret name, I'm not sure exactly what words they used, of God is so powerful and it can mm-hmm. cause so much damage. It It's really cool to see that reflected in that way as well. Yeah, I, I think it's really, really fascinating. And I think that again, in addition to all that, just something that I I really think is important to keep in mind and something that I personally am trying to get a lot better about and a lot more mindful about is just this idea that like, again, no matter how much you see in a story that's like, I feel like I can relate to this, or I feel like I can extrapolate this, or like I can be inspired by this element of it. Context is everything. And specifically in stories that come to us from certain cultures or certain traditions or certain folklores or communities or what have you, like, the context that grounds them makes something inherently specific. And when we take elements of it out of that, it's really not the same thing anymore. And I don't really know where I'm going with that other than to just say that like, one, not every story belongs to you and not every story (laughs) belongs to me personally. And again, this is something that like, I'm being very, I'm being very open about right now is the fact that like, this is something that I have learned a lot about even in the process of doing this show specifically. I would say almost especially in the context of doing this this show. show. And like, you know, I mean, there are episodes that we've done that if I were to revisit them today, knowing what I know now, and like having been humbled in a lot of the ways I've been humbled, like I wouldn't do them again. Mm-hmm. Um, or I would approach them very, very differently. But it's just like, it's such an important thing to learn. And I think that coming to that realization doesn't rob you of like incredible stories and storytelling experiences. Like, it feels like it is going to, it feels like you're losing so many things that you're able to tap into. But I think what you're gaining instead is such a richer appreciation for like what stories mean to people and what they mean to groups of people. And like, that is so much more worthwhile than being able to write a book about whatever you want. (laughs) And that's just the reality of it. Yeah, it's so true. And it's also a really important lesson in like, Mm -hmm. You don't have to take something, you don't have to own something, you don't have to put your grubby little hands all over it in order to appreciate it and to get something out of it. Like, you can still, like, no one's stopping you from reading, like, folklore from cultures that you don't belong to and trying to appreciate those stories and, and, like, learn from them and understand the context that they were born out of and what they mean. You know, it's it's what people when people talk about the difference between appropriation and appreciation. There's still so yeah, much and to there's learn. nothing wrong with and there's nothing wrong with looking at something and acknowledging like I have nothing to add to this. Yes, it's 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 that important lesson and a lesson that a lot of us that come from very, uh, including myself here, that come from very privileged uh, groups and walks of life uh, have to learn, which is just kind of like your voice isn't always needed. <laughs> And I get the irony of saying this on a podcast that I host, so, like, that this is very mm-hmm. steeped in, in in irony, but... Fun fact, though, did you know there's a Sonic game with a golem in it? What? No. <laughs> no. There, there is. There's a Sonic game where one of the boss fights is your knuckles and you're fighting a big golem inside a pyramid. Uh, you should know that um, I know so little about Sonic that up until extremely recently, I thought that um, Eggman and Dr. Robotnik were different people. So, Oh, uh, boy. I, I've never played a Sonic game, you, but like, I, I knew. Okay, I knew Andrew. <laughs> Look, all I'm saying is... I'm a real gamer, and it's okay that you're not. Okay, but I'm. I don't. But bl- to get back to the topic at hand, <laughs> I'm Eggman Edison, is the one who activates the golem, and I want to talk about. That. Okay, all right. So, does, are you saying that does Eggman? Does Doctor Eggman know the secret name of God? <laughs> Eggman knows the name of God. I don't like that. I don't like that addition to the lore of this hedgehog video game. Hey, I don't, I know that you guys have like an outro 
line, like a little <laughs> tagline stinger, but maybe you could replace it. With Eggman <laughs> knows replace the true name of that. God. Eggman knows the true name of God. <clears throat> oh my goodness. I think perhaps that would not be the best closing line for this I... show. <laughs> Does Dr. But Eggman I see, know the secret name? I see where your head's at. I do. Apparently, as of 2017, Sonic the Hedgehog is playable in Hebrew. I mean, that's cool. Dope. I was just looking for any more context on this, and that's all I got. <laughs> Look, there is none. That's it. He knows the true name of God. <laughs> Dr. Eggman knows the true name of God. Do you think they gave it to Jim Carrey as part of his preparation for the role? <laughs> <laughs> who, would, who would be they? Who is the they that gave Jim Carrey the true name of God? That's a good question. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> we've definitely lost the thread a little bit here, but thank you uh, so much for joining us yeah, today. Yeah, thank you Andrew. so much. Really appreciated having you on. Um, oh, I it's really... my pleasure. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you will not have me. No, back. we will. We definitely will. And I was gonna say, yeah, thank you so much for being here. This is one of those situations where, like, one, we love having you on the show. You've been on the show many times. You act as if. <laughs> This is the first time you've been on whatever. Um, but, uh, um, and, and just also like something that like, it, it's, it's really helpful and it's really fun to be able to talk about a topic like this with somebody who might like have more of a cultural connection to it. And like, a- I'm sorry, I didn't actually have much more of a, like more to share. Like, I understand I had more of a cultural connection, but I, my knowledge of the subject was not. How dare you not be a golem expert? We have never once invited an expert on anything onto this show, and I don't foresee that changing. Yeah. Um, I would like to get better about inviting perspectives onto our show that do have this, like, cultural background in SharePoint, but um, I don't think that it ever really needs to be intellectual. I would I would much prefer it to just be, like, conversational and, and communal, you know? Mm-hmm. This is, this wasn't, this has never been an educational podcast, and we won't start now. <laughs> yeah oh you've come Mm. here to learn then why don't you hop your little butt out of the comedy category and go to the (laughs) education category a little there are shows out there for you why did you insist on this one (laughs) truly i don't read itunes reviews uh of the show anymore because i like myself but um uh, i i definitely i feel like at at various points we've gotten we've gotten critiqued for not being very educational and i'm like that's not what this is for. It's oh, literally yeah. in like the first 20 seconds of an episode. You'd be amazed how much that doesn't stop people. <laughs> anyway, if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. <laughs> in all seriousness, ratings and reviews like do help drive shows up in the iTunes charts and make and will maybe help other people that might be interested find the show spotted on their feed on uh, their podcast app. I do not, as I said, I don't check reviews, but if you do rate and review the show and you want me to thank you personally for your contribution, you can always send me a screenshot on Twitter. I'm always happy to be like, oh my god, thank you, because it's a very nice thing to do. And so Something that I often forget to do, even though I listen to and love a lot of podcasts, I often forget that you can just go do a really simple little like you five can just star. Do that. They just let you help podcasts for free. They let you just knock them five stars and a couple words about how you, what you like about the show, and that helps them all for free. Only the expense of like a minute of your time. Or if you're really cool, you could talk about how much you hate all the vocal fry we use. That's a pretty good. Uh, yeah, it's a pretty good strategy. <laughs> <laughs> It's worked for others, I guess. Has it? Okay. Anyway, yeah, thank you all. I hope everybody is is uh, hanging in there, mm-hmm. out there. I hope you're keeping it real um, or keeping it unreal, as the case would be, as as many others are doing in these drying times. Doing your best. We appreciate you sticking with us. Um, we're going to do our best to keep getting content out to you as best as we are humanly capable of doing, which may vary as time goes on. So, you know, just... Stay up to date on the Twitter and the Facebook group and Mm -hmm. any other way that you get your news from us. Uh, We'll try to be good at least about letting you know when we're not going to be able to make something happen. But for now, we're staying on a regular schedule. And what were you going to say? I was going to say, speaking of which, if you don't follow us on Twitter... That is where you would get this information. That is at CryptKeepPod. That is uh, C-R-Y-P-T-K-E-E-P-P-O-D. 
That is also our email. It is cryptkeeppod at gmail.com. And then Alex mentioned the Facebook group. I just realized I haven't plugged our socials in about 10 episodes. So I was like, "Uh uh-oh. Our Facebook group is the Cryptic Keeper Appreciation Group. You can find us by searching that on Facebook. And then you can also follow our page on Facebook as well under the Cryptid Keeper. That's a good way to keep up with what's going on, how if scheduling changes, all that good stuff. And thank you, Andrew, for being here with us. I know you had to travel such a long way to get to this you know I'll, show it's, it's no trouble oh so generous and also andrew thank you for writing our theme song oh it's really no trouble yeah that thing slaps it really 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 does to this day it is one of my favorite things that i've written oh i'm so Aww. glad we love it and thank you to all of you dear listeners as we wrap up this week's episode i hope you're all staying safe and well and telling the people in your life that you love that you love them because Right now, we are all we've got, everybody. People, we need each other. As Barbara Streisand once said, people need people or something. So, as always, we hope we can keep you around and stay safe out there. Eggman knows the true name of God.